Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast in episode 1000, four years in the making. Did our very first podcast early May of 2016, one of the greatest of all times, Mario Andretti, guest number one, episode number one, and it has been a rather wild journey on this little audio adventure after hours endeavor of mine supported by you so many of you have offered encouragement over the previous 999 episodes we wouldn't be here at 1000 without you so to celebrate you and to say thank you wanted to do something special and that was choosing the best from 12 hours of interviews from 15 plus of our favorite guests, some who've been on the show many times, some who've actually never been on the show, a few whose interviews are still sitting in the can. But I said, hey, let's get some of your favorite stories, some that you might have never shared before, some that might have been told, but hey, let's do this and celebrate our audience. So thank you to you for helping me and my wife and those of us that do this little thing on a weekly basis for the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you as well to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA. I'm telling you, we have 40-plus stories, some as short as two minutes, some 15 minutes or longer, and they are all over the place. A lot of laughing involved, a little bit of bleeping involved. This is certainly not one for the kids to listen to, but nonetheless, thank you for helping me to get here. It does mean an awful lot to have something that has permanence and to have reached 1,000. We've identified five listeners so far who've listened to the first 999, all captured on marshallpruittpodcast.com. So let's get going with number 1000, all stories, all fun, all for you. We open the show with our pal, Alan McNish, the Scott, three-time winner of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, legend of Audi, winning so many races with the great Dane, Tom Christensen, and their Italian teammate, the hilarious Dindo Capello. We're talking about Petit Le Mans. There's a reference to Sears Point in here. We even have legendary Porsche 917 Can-Am entrant, Vasek Polak who somehow finds his way into the conversation. But Petit has been a big part of the stories as well. You know, one of them was with Dindo, where we were fighting with Peugeot for the lead. And the radio call now is, you know, all chilled and relaxed. Well, no, I wasn't. But, uh, you know, the radio call came in from Dindo saying he couldn't see. And, uh, what? He what? And, he, you know, it was the, the confusion on our end of the radio. What do you mean you can't see? <laughs> it's It's daylight. And uh, then he then he said, oh, no, no, I can see again. I can see again. And so everybody sort of looked at each other. And then about 30 seconds later, I can't see, I can't see. And another, another five seconds, I can see again, I can see again. And uh, what, what, he had to come into the pits in the end. And he came down in the pit lane not being able to see. And he couldn't see because uh, his balaclava had slipped down over his eyes. And every time he's braked, the helmet used to come forward and push the balaclava down over his eyes. And every time he'd accelerate, then the, the helmet would go backwards and he'd pull the balaclava up. And it, it oh. tur- turned, turned out that Dindo had uh, fitted his uh, a device we had to put inside our helmets in IMSA. And it was uh, lifted the helmet off. It was an airbag that lifted the helmet off in case of an injury. And he had fitted that himself, but obviously not, not well enough. And this thing had started moving around inside his helmet. And I suppose as a race that uh, slipped away from us in the end, 
it was one of the the oddest, bizarrest reasons that you lost the race was because you couldn't see due to your helmet slipping around. But uh, I love the fact on. that he wants to communicate this over the radio each time. I can't see. I can't see. Oh, I can see. I can't see. I mean, like, what the hell do you want it's us to do? It's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> Open your eyes. Well, no, I think that was the first thing that H said to him was open your eyes. What do you mean you can't see? You know, lift your visor. What was it? It was complete confusion. And you can understand the whole pit wall who are more interested in the fuel efficiency, the number, the tyre degradation and spotting all of these different things. Strategy when we're in our pit window. Not exactly necessarily, you know, thinking about uh, <laughs> whether the driver can actually see or not. I think that was always a given. But with Dindo, you you could always be sure that there was a few stories that would uh, come through. We had another one, which uh, we get to Sears Point, and which personally I think was one of my best ever races uh, in 2000. And I had an eye infection um, and in the morning, and I couldn't do anything about it. My right eye was just burning like hell. Uh, but anyway, I had to get on with the race. I'm in pole position, won the race. Then the next morning was uh, in the local hospital. I had to get taken to the hospital by Dindo, my chauffeur. And so he took me to the local hospital in San Francisco. And uh, Vasek Polak, you remember Vasek? Yes. Vasek walked in. And I've got no idea why he was in this hospital. But everywhere where we went on this whole visit, then Vasek happened to be there. So he walked in. That was fine. Had the got drops, went off to the next race. And uh, then we were back in that area to go to Laguna uh, a couple of weeks later. And hey, presto, Dindo had an eye infection. And we had to go to the same hospital. Guess who we saw? <laughs> and it was just a case that we had this sort of standing order in a San Francisco eye hospital uh, between Dindo and I at that point. It, it, that year in 2000s, wherever we went in the oddest of places, then Vasek just turned up. He was a friend of Mr. Eust's. And obviously the families knew each other for such a long period of time. Um, but they turned up in all of the oddest areas. And if you ever needed anything, all you needed to do, it didn't matter what it was. He could organize whatever you needed. Replacement engine, eye hospital, this, that, the next. Car to go from A to B. Vasek was absolutely incredible with uh, everything like that. Chris Nifel will be remembered as one of motor racing's great wild men. Someone who, in an Indy car, many Indy cars built specifically for him to fit all six foot five, six foot six of his Chicagoan frame. Bubbles placed in Porsche 962s to fit that height. Someone who raced many things. Factory Corvette driver. Few people had as much fun as the man nicknamed Knife. Later, went on to be chief steward in cart and champ car but before all that we have a story to tell about 1984 indianapolis motor speedway it's a winding story one of nifel's favorites one of his best we get into french canadian racing royalty a bit of paying it forward reference a car i first saw tucked away in the ims museum's basement mid dragsters and dusty formula one cars that set a record frankly I don't know if anybody really wants. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna set a record, at least get one that really never will be broken. 
you know, poor Tom Sneva, you know, what did he do? 210 that year. And it, you know, his little record didn't last, but seems like a, a maybe a year. Anyway, so 199.831 is the four lap average you're talking about. And uh, yeah, that was, it was a crazy deal. Um, backing up, uh, Jacques Villeneuve, brother to Gilles. Jacques and I drove at Douglas Shearson Racing in the Formula Atlantic Series together in 1981. That's where we first met and ultimately, you know, we became friends. He, of course, was well on his way in those days to winning a a second Atlantic championship. He was, you know, further along in his career path than than I was many years, you know, I say many years, he's probably five, six years older than than me. So fast forward, now we're, we're into this IndyCar thing in, we're talking 1984 now, and the beautiful charcoal gray Primus, number 72 car, when the car was built, it was it was so good, and we just somehow or another lost something with it, and it was really really tricky at Indy because it would sort of do good things for a while, and then without really giving any notice, it would just change personality, and it would want to it would want to bite. It became evil, and it was it was difficult from a confidence standpoint because it would it would give you the confidence and it would quickly and for apparently no reason take it away so speed was a problem for us the uh the entire month of may things were not looking terribly good and, and you know so we ended up getting getting bumped out um and i as i recall there was rain involved uh on that fourth day of qualifying of course we're back to when it was actually the a month of may and for you know two full weekends of qualifying and uh you know things Things weren't well. Jacques had qualified in the Canadian tire car. He had also crashed and and hurt himself. He was definitely uh, concussed and I think had some neck. In in addition to the concussion, he had some neck problems, Uh, not in terms of fracture, but just like a stretch, like a a whiplash type thing. So we we were bumped. Um, Basically, the our you know, our main sponsor was uh, based in Houston. I left the track uh, with him on Sunday night, and it didn't uh, it didn't look good. So we we flew to Houston, and it was like, well, you know, that's how it goes. It was probably that Monday or Tuesday. Get a call from Lee Kunzman, who's the team manager, and Kunzman's like, it doesn't look like Villeneuve's going to make it. Uh, I think we can work something out. Um, of course, the you know in those days, uh, I know it's different now. So I'm going to say in those days. You know, it was technically the entry that qualifies, not the driver. It's the entry. So technically, the the team, their you know the Jacques Villeneuve team, you know, they were in control of that spot in the field. And uh, so Kunzman started to basically negotiate, you know, because we were the next one in line to go in, but there wasn't anything, you know, short of them withdrawing the entry. You know, they withdrew the, you know, they withdraw the entry. We go from 34 to 33 is the thing, but they could also have put someone else in that car, right. And started the race and done that also. So that was what was in play. And I don't know, obviously there was money involved and I think for sure it was, uh, whatever prize money, uh, we earned i'm pot because i know i didn't get a cut of it so sixty-one thousand six hundred and eighty-three dollars um, is okay, what you so, earned in 1984 mr Nifel, or okay, the team earned you. i should say <laughs> right 
Right. So I'm, I'm positive that that all would have gone to the, to the JV team, to, to Villeneuve team over and above that. I don't know. And I, and that's honest, I don't know, but I know there was, there was something done because that, that's what had to happen was they had to withdraw the entry for us to go from 34 to 33, right? Because we were the, you know, quote unquote, first alternate. And uh, so their decision was, you know, they could put, they could have put someone else in the car. Of course, it, it, with that, it's now it's that Monday, Tuesday, your carb day on Thursday. So they're, you know, 36, 48 hours to get someone in the car and actually race it. And is it even worth their while to do that? Go out and wreck their car. You know, they keep in mind they had just destroyed a car, right? Because that's what got them in that situation uh, to begin with was the villain of wreck. I'm positive that my relationship with, uh, with Jacques also played a part because now backing up to 1982, when I had the opportunity to do a couple of IndyCar races with the then Jameson team, which was an Eagle Cosworth. My first race was Riverside and then Road America. Uh, the sponsorship that I got and had, we brought to that team, and it was John Barnes was the chief mechanic, Joe Kennedy, John O'Gara, some really good guys. Uh, Brian Barnhart was on that team, and but it was a three race. It was a three race uh, sponsorship package. As it turned out, this was unbeknownst when, when I got the sponsorship thing for three races. I didn't know that if I did the third race that I would be ineligible as a rookie in cart for the next year. And that's what we were shooting for, was wanted to be a rookie in 1983. So the third race we had penciled in would have been the fall race in Phoenix. So we decided this was with Lee Kunzman is basically my advisor, mentor, and he was involved in putting all of this together, we decided that I wouldn't, I wouldn't do the third race so I could retain rookie status for 1983. We decided to put Jack Villeneuve in the car. We basically gave him, you know, it was my sponsor and it was, you know, my deal. And we put Jacques in the car, which got him into IndyCar. Okay. So now you're getting a little backstory here that goes backwards from 1984 to the fall of 82. So I don't know if we want to get into quid pro quo. That certainly wasn't the thing. Like I never said to, I never said to Jacques, Hey, you remember in 82, a couple of years ago, and we got you hooked up and you got to, you know, run at Phoenix that never happened, but maybe it's a case of what goes around comes around in a good way, you know, but I, I don't know, but I, you know, for sure, like I say, I know there was financial stuff that took place for them to consider withdrawing their entry, which obviously they did. Then the rest is history there. And, and the, the sorry thing about it is I actually got that car and we were running well within the top 10 of that race, the Indy 500. It was close between sort of like 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. We're all pretty close. We were right around. Everyone was getting close to the last pit stop. I'll be doggone if uh, we didn't break an input shaft with uh, 25 laps to go. Uh, input shaft broke going down the back straightaway. That ended our run, which was too bad because it would have been it would have been a top ten. Like I say, it could have been you know, could have been seven, could have been ten, but it would have been eleven. And uh, so we ended up fifteenth. You know, obviously not running, but uh, you know, so it it worked out pretty good. You know, we we hung in there and managed to do something with it. And you know, and I got to race in a second Indy 500, so which was pretty cool. But I guess we sort of we backed our way in to some extent. But uh, here we are, two time starter at Indy and the last driver to qualify and race in the Indy 500 with a four lap average of less than 200 miles an hour. That's me. And the car is 
in the Speedway Museum because that car also is the last American car built in Indianapolis to race at the Indy 500 to this day. There's a few little nuggets with that with that car. And that car was built 100% in Indy. 8225 Country Club Place was the address of the race shop. And it was a small group of guys. There probably wasn't 10, 12 guys all told that uh, built that car from scratch. And they built two of them. Pretty cool. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful car. And it was cool that finally in this past year, of course, thank you COVID to cut the display time short, that finally gets up to the uh, to the main floor of the museum. But it was about this time last year that car got brought up from the basement for the first time and was put on display uh, for several months. And it ended up when the museum closed in the spring. You know, that was the end of it. So running back to the basement, she went. (laughs) Before we became to love Justin Bell's a broadcaster, pit lane reporter, man about town, the Brit was a rather fine open wheel driver, sports car pilot. He's taking us back to a memory that might have more humor than fondness. 1994, 24 Hours of Le Mans, debut, first time, competing the Dodge Viper at the Great Endurance Race. Production base car, though. Amateur team, though. Hilarity ensues, for the most part. And hey, he's paired with French Formula One legend, Rene Arnoux, who might have, according to JB, had more fun in his trailer than competing in the race itself. Le Mans. Um, The Dodge Viper had not been to Le Mans at that point. It was this monstrous American invention, improbable and impractical and thunderous, you know, and this French guy approached me about somehow about uh, driving it. And his name will come to you in a minute. It kind of came together. My friend James helped put it together as he always did with a lot of those deals uh, and remember there had been no Orica with Viper at this point there had been no development of a factory car but I was right in the th- thick of my career so I sort of had a level of some expectation of what this would be like and after all you don't go to Le Mans in a converted road car really do you much um that's what i thought my early 90s experience in that pig whistle of a flying tornado of a ferrari a spice ferrari i that that had set my le mans scene a little bit off on a kickstart but this you know since then i'd driven the ada porsche at 962 and uh, something else and and so when i got the chance to drive it i thought god this will be fantastic obviously with no premonition of the six years I'd spend with them after this, but as a factory driver, but I get to Le Mans and for the test weekend. And it was, it was obviously going to be very exciting to drive with René Arnoux. I mean, I was a fan of his, he's an ex Formula One driver and it was really fun, good looking race suits and the cars there. And it's, you know, very eye catching orange, day glow orange. But the whole point was that when you put a, a Le Mans entry together as a French team, as anyone who has witnessed it firsthand knows, you do have a certain ability to slide through scrutineering back in those days. <laughs> you know, there was a, oh, we won't look too closely, especially as I don't think it conformed to many of the regulations in a lot of ways. But I was a bit, I'm not an engineering-based driver, as you well know. So I was looking at the car thing. Well, it's got a big wing on it and a big splitter. It can't be 
I went a little splitter actually. Can't be, can't be a front splitter. Can't be that bad. Until uh, for some reason we didn't, we didn't. We had some problems, so it weren't able to go out at practice uh, in, until we actually went for the real race. Uh, they had some issues with some parts. So all excited, packed it down, got ready for the race. Um, you know, a month or so later, and to go through scrutineering in town with Rene Arnoux in France and Bertrand Ballas, who was a, a French rally driver, was extraordinary. Everybody was, it was like being with a megastar. It was so fun. And we went through the square and we did all this. And I, I was thinking the, the French gravitated to this funny, funny big orange car. Rene had a, a very nice motorhome and we had like a, I think a shed. You know, it was very much about what Rene wanted to do in the car. The the big problem was that Rene didn't want to do much in the car. Um, Rene was an ex-Formula One driver who I have no clue how he had been manipulated in being, into being there. And I don't know if you ever taught him, but he doesn't speak a lot of English, as in nothing, um, which was very un- unusual for the time, uh, especially with ex, you know, F1 drivers. I somehow got the the job of going out first uh, in second in the car. He went out first, immediately came in and said I could drive. So I head out. And um, it was interesting because it was very fast, as you can imagine. And But on the straight, because it, they put this bloody great big rear wing on it, effectively the thing was just went down with the front off the ground. It, I mean, so light at the front. No downforce. Popping a wheelie. Popping a bloody wheelie, basically. It was so it would shift. It would. I mean, it reminded me of like driving my dad's boat. You, you know, little boat. If you don't predict it where it was going to sort of point itself, you'd get behind it, and then you'd end up in a tank slapper. God, it was freaking awful. But so much fun uh, out of the court. You know, under load, out of the corners because that thunderous V10. Um, a lot of fan support. So anytime you weren't actually scaring yourself shitless, you felt like a bit of a megastar in France at Le Mans. Rene, we got, we got into the race. Uh, we obviously got in the race, but, you know, we, we, the race started on the grid. We looked good. We get going. R- Rene was um, uh, absent most of the time, very absent. I don't know what ex-Formula One famous French race drivers do in their motorhomes. Let's just say it was stimulating maybe. I don't know. That's all I can throw out there. It was, it was, let's just say it was easier to follow the white line in his trailer than it was on the track. Freaking hell. We, he, I don't think he ever got in the car, basically, hardly ever at all. Um, Bertrand and I had to do most of the driving. They had problems. Can you imagine taking a road going Viper and trying to run it there? The heat issues, the brake cooling issues. Um, and it really was, it was, it, and it wasn't like a GT4 Porsche, you know, these days. It was a, it was a bag of shit. And, Anyway, I think we actually kind of made the end of the race by hook you or crook. Finished twelfth, which is I the know. easy thing. Isn't that wild? Um, we staggered around. I drove most of the night. It was, it was hot. It was. I mean, I remember the fumes. You get out with chronic migraines because the fumes were coming in. Um, the engine in front, the, your feet were melting to the front. Your my my feet were actually melting to the pedals. And uh, anyway. All I can tell you, we got out of there. He 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 won. Obviously, you know, he took a lot of the accolades, as you'd imagine, and that was it. And the chapter was closed. But that little orange model car will appear anywhere. I have one on my shelf right now. And when quite soon after, you know, we had the the uh, Harrods experience, which was a lot better. 
um, in the F1. But then when I actually ended up racing with Arika, I remember the guys at Dodge, I went to this big press launch and Chrysler in, in Detroit. And they're like, so we are going back to Le Mans. I was strictly told not to mention the fact that I'd already driven there <laughs> in the Viper because that was not part of the Empire Strikes Back plan. But it was just great. You know, there's the crazy things that I think you – could probably do it Lamar up until the last five years, ten years, and now um, you know I, I don't. I'm, I know there's people that have weird and wonderful experiences and some really big dogs there, but on the whole, I think the ex, the pioneering days in a little way are, are gone. Um, so I'm glad I had two sphincter prepping experiences in cars at Lamar. So that was a funny one. Tony Dow's career as a chief mechanic in Formula One had him working with some of the greatest drivers, most phenomenal machines of the 1970s. Before moving on to the Kart IndyCar series in the 1980s, Carl Haas in particular, and then it was Tom Walkinshaw, his IMSA GTP program. On behalf of the Jaguar factory, this is where we intersect for this story. Dow, a good pal from England, ringing us from down under in Australia. Contract negotiation, 10 years worth. And what else do we get into? Well, Walkinshaw, with his part in the Benetton Formula One team here in the early 90s, illegal launch control absolutely shot to the forefront. A scandal that gets spoken about here, and it's not even the best part of the story. I went to a um, Group C race in Montreal, and part of the time being there, there was meant to be a uh, meeting with Davy Jones, with Tom and myself, to put together. Davy and his manager wanted a 10-year contract with TWR. Tom said to me, well, we can give him a 10-year contract. There's always going to be outs and caveats and so on. If, if it doesn't work out, then, you know, it doesn't work out, you know. So if that makes him feel good, then we'll do it. So, okay, Let's do that. So we arranged after the Saturday qualifying that we would meet in the hotel in downtown Montreal. It was going to be like a six o'clock meeting that should last about an hour to organize it, shake hands and then go and have, have dinner. So I arrived at the hotel, um, went up to Tom's room and uh, chatting about this, that, and the other, and we come to six o'clock, no Davy. so Tom's getting humpy, like, where is Davy? I ring him on the, the mobile and doesn't answer, so I just leave a message, you, you need you need to give me a call. Tom and myself are waiting, and this is uh, something that isn't going to, you know, wait forever, um, and about 20 minutes later, I get a call, we're on the way, we've been delayed, and uh, uh, okay. We get round past 6.30 and uh, I call him again. I said, Davey, what's going on? He said, oh, well, I'll, I'll explain when I get there. We are on the way. We're, 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 we're close. So anyway, he finally gets there about 10 past 7 and Tom is steaming fit to be tied. And there's lots of apologies and so on and so on. So we what, what should have been an hour's meeting and, uh, you know, a bunch of detail was very 
quickly uh, okay well if you want 10 years we'll write your 10-year contract you know but at some point we may not have the money to go racing because it's going to all be sponsorship if that isn't there and so on Davey wanted um, a Formula One test drive with Benetton which Tom was heavily involved with at the time so Tom agreed to that what Davey didn't realize was when he got called to England to drive the Benetton what he was actually doing was driving up and down the runway at Silverstone sorting out launch control which um, needless to say not legal but uh, Davey (laughs) did the development work on it Yeah, let's, let's hold on. To... Uh, history has told us that such things never existed. Well, I know what history told you, but I can tell you what the reality was. <laughs> Um, There was a really smart engineer at uh, Benetton called Tad Zapsky, who was doing all the software for that. That's a whole nother story. So anyway, we all by about 7.30 shake hands and we're going to put it into a document and away we go. I walked downstairs with Davey. I said, Davey, what the f*** went on there? And what it turned out was Davey was with Andy Wallace and Jan Lammers and was getting a lift with them from the track to the hotel. But unfortunately, you've got two of the biggest jokers that there was. And so what they had, they had Andy on the steering wheel uh, in, sat in the middle of the car and you had Jan on the brakes and Davy on the throttle when you leave Montreal there's like a clover leaf off of the island to get back to the mainland and they managed to spin the car with the three of them doing different things and of course they got stopped and arrested so yeah right so they got taken off to the local police station and here's Davy with a 10-year contract going out the window. And so he was like, he just said, look, I'll pay whatever it takes, you know. And of course, eventually the police let him go, but they did have to go back and uh, face the music. I know Andy Wallace was on the steering wheel, but it would probably, it may have been Jan on the throttle and Davy on the brakes, but either way... It wasn't the the best thing in the world to do. We're going to veer towards something a little bit more serious with our pal, the amazing Robert Rahal. Bobby, winner of the Indy 500 in 1986, three championships, more success as a team owner these days in the NTT IndyCar Series. He's also a pretty good wheel man when it comes to sports cars. So rather than open with a story from Bob, about IndyCar, something along those lines. We're going to go to Le Mans, actually, 1980. His debut, driving Dick Barber's Porsche 935 K3, where this gets interesting for me, at least. Not just listening to Bob talking about his debut, whistling down the Mulsanne. It's also the sponsor carried on the car. Apple, 1980. There's a fun story in here as well about Steve Jobs and the other races that Bob did with the team throughout the season, two years before he did land and get that Indy 500 career started. I'm a bit of a romantic when it comes to racing. Racing in Europe, uh, I really loved when I raced Formula 3 for uh, Dallara and Walter Wolf uh, in 78 and then ran Formula 2 in 79 and some sports cars in 81. Uh, I mean, the idea of racing at Monza, Italy, or Nürburgring. I mean, just these clay, these circuits that all you'd ever 
done was read about them. And so now's your chance to go to Le Mans. You know, it's like going to Indy, frankly. It's, you know, it's a race, maybe going to Monaco. It's a race that sit that stands above the rest. And to go to Le Mans, of course, you know, you, you're, you know, you read uh, about Le Mans, the four GT Ferrari battles, the Ferraris, the, you know, uh, of course, the Porsches. Uh, I mean, that was, to me, that was kind of a dream. And then the chance to go there to race in 1980, you know, with the Apple computer car, that was an exciting, you know, new program. Uh, it was a, the Garrison team was a great group of people, many of whom were amateurs, you know, weekend warriors, but were very capable people. And the, the camaraderie within that team was, was just phenomenal. Clearly, they had some professional mechanics and guys who were there working on those cars full time. But there were a lot of people that were there at night after work, you know, there on the weekends. Uh, and it was just a, a really great kind of big family atmosphere. And of course, you know, that year we had uh, John Fitzpatrick was, was kind of the number one driver and of course, Fitzy had had all kinds of success around the world in, in GT cars and, and um, had raced, obviously raced in Europe as most of his time. And so to go there and, and um, I'll never forget, I, I tell people that um, the Mulzahn Strait was just the most amazing experience to be going flat out for that long. Uh, and of course, you know, it was great when it was in the dry, but when it was wet, when it was raining, it was maybe one of the most nerve wracking experiences. And in fact, that's what happened when I, we started the race, it rained at, uh, in the beginning of the race. It rained quite a bit actually that, that day. And, uh, at night going on the Mulzahn, you know, the Mulzahn was not smooth. You know, there were bumps and ripples and high spots, low spots. So when you're going down there at night, you see all these dark mirages, these dark patches, and you can't tell if it's just the shadow of the track or if it's a big puddle. And of course, you're doing um, 190, 200 miles an hour. Um, and you, you sure hope you guess right. I think one of the most, I wish I'd had a camera. I think one of the most amazing shots that ever would have been was uh, in the middle of the night, I got hooked up with Fitzy. We were going down the Molson Strait, and I was kind of drafting him. I was probably only two feet off the back of his car. Of course, my lights are super bright, and the back of his car is literally on fire. You know, the turbos are spitting flame out. The wastegate exhausts are spitting flame out. The the turbos, the twin turbos are cherry red, just glowing. The exhaust pipes are cherry red. I mean, I mean, it was wow. just the most amazing sight. And I had kind of bleached out the back of his car so you could barely see the, the, the intensity of my lights basically bleached out so it was just white. And, of course, this was in the middle of this, surrounded by this field of, of blackness, which was because it was night. You know, it was just, I wish, like I said, I wish I had a camera because – to, it would have been just an amazing shot and just shown the intensity to me of what Le Mans was all about. So, you know, very disappointing for us when we lost a cylinder uh, uh, half, about halfway through the race, but we had competed well up to that point. Um, tough race because of the rain, but, but just to go to Le Mans, that was like, you know, there's nothing better. And of course I went back there a couple of times, never did have any real kind of luck there. Um, the next year, Brian Redman and I were going to drive a, a, a Lola Porsche, which managed to never turn a lap until we brought it to Le Mans. Now, that's not the way you get prepared for Le Mans 24 hours. Mm. And fortunately, it, it, we didn't qualify because it probably would have killed one of us, I'm sure, because um, it didn't have any time on it. You know, who knew what was going to happen? Luckily, it didn't uh, qualify uh, in any event. You know, every experience, no matter how good or bad uh, there, I think it's just a very special experience. This being 1980, 
Apple sponsorship, those colors, that car is is, that car. If you talk about models, one forty thirds or whatever else, everybody loves that car. And this was at a time where we didn't have the internet. Computers weren't exactly a household thing. Hell, Apple wasn't yet a household name. Probably a lot of people didn't know what it was. We look back now and go, wow, what an iconic collaboration. Yeah. Well, and at the time, like you said, everybody go, everybody was going like, Apple what? Apple who? You know, what's that? Uh, and it was a fellow who, I can't think of his name now, but he was, I think their ad manager, you know, they were a small company at that time. And uh, he's the one who agreed to sponsor. I think we did six races that year. You know, nobody ever knew. Nobody knew what the hell an Apple computer was. And um, of course, the coloring. You know, uh, it was. It was even even then, as popular as it was, there was there were still more questions than answers about what's Apple, right? So to be associated with that was. You know, you look back now. I wish I'd taken my salary, which was nothing, um, you know, in, in stock, right? In stock. But uh, you know, the funny thing. I remember we raced at Sebring. Steve Jobs came down. And my only claim to fame with Steve Jobs is he and I spent um, slept on two benches in the Orlando airport on the way home, you know, because um, we broke, obviously. And, and of course, the Orlando airport in 1980 is nothing like it is today. Uh, yeah, here I am sleeping on a bench next to uh, Steve Jobs. You know, who would have thought that? Who would have thought that, right? And I, I, I recall, you know, there was always this feeling that Steve was kind of into cars. And after that weekend, I kind of came to the conclusion that Steve could care less about cars. But it is interesting. It's like you say that in the 143rd, you know, K3 cars, models, I think that I think the Apple car is the most popular version, you know, that's out there. And it did. It just, you know, great color, great graphics, great. You know, it was just a, a great, a new idea whose time had come. And, and we'd all, um, you know, I think we all felt that we um, were part of something special. It's hard to tell whether Ryan Eversley is more famous for podcasting or being a factory driver for Honda Performance Development. But thanks to an invitation for the very first season of Dinner with Racers and help from show co-founder Sean Heckman, on how to create a podcast of my own? Well, that's why we are here at episode 1000. Broken bones of the beast story in this rather demystifying tale that paints some of today's great American sports car drivers in a very different light. First party story that comes to mind is it's related to Eric Foss's, I think it was his 30th birthday. We all worked at the Panos Racing School at the time. So Andrew Davis was there, I was there. I think Charles Espinlaw might have been there, but a whole bunch of the Atlanta Panos crowd. And uh, Brian Cunningham, who works at the Porsche Sport Driving School, not the one that used to race for Prototype Technology Group, but another one. But uh, Brian Cunningham was our uh, our chief, one of our chief instructors, and he had bought a very nice, very expensive bottle of tequila for Eric Foss for his birthday. Somebody else at the party had brought, you know, just like Jose Cuervo or something, you know. They brought it with a thing called the Wizard, and the Wizard was this little butler-dressed bald man statue. You know, it was like maybe like eight inches tall or whatever. And instead of having a penis, he had a little like drink, like uh, like a sink faucet, you know, coming out of it. Oh wow! And his feet would hold a shot glass, so you'd put the shot glass in there. I think you pushed his head down, and then it would, you know, the Wizard would pour a shot of tequila. And it was like just the funniest thing. So we're, we're pouring shots out of that all night. Well, as shots continue to flow, eventually we all get the very smart idea of like, why do you need a shot glass when you can just shoot the wizard right into your mouth? <laughs> and one of the last 
<laughs> one of the last memories I have of that night is Eric Foss holding the whizzer over me and I'm drinking from the whizzer and it's just straight tequila. And it's the very expensive bottle that Brian Cunningham so kindly purchased for Eric's birthday, which is definitely not meant to be drank through a whizzer. And that's the first thing that came to mind. I also broke my collarbone later that night, hammered drunk. We'll tell that story another time. Um, I mean, I guess the, the thing about racing parties is that we had, we, we basically lived in a frat house because Mike Johnson, who I got my first start in racing under, he had a house about two exits south of Road Atlanta in the Hamilton Mill area, which eventually became Andy Lally's house. And now Andy Lally's parents live there. So it's, it's been like this racer house. It's, it's much nicer and much more adult now than it was when we lived there because at certain times we'd have big wheels and mountain bikes and skateboards. And this is when we were in our thirties. So I'm still in my thirties. This is when Lally and, and Pompali were in their thirties because they lived there too. But we used to have the petite party after road Atlanta. And it was like any movie you've ever seen where the parents were out of town and the kids throw a party, you know, it's just like people everywhere. It's packed and, and it was fantastic. And we would invite everybody and it was like the who's who, you know what I mean? I'd be standing there vaguely able to see in front of me and it'd be like every factory Porsche driver, the Corvette team, all of them are just packed into our house. And uh, Larry Holt came over once and I remember he was signing our fridge and he slipped on someone's beer and he landed on the on the stove and it bent the stove handle in to the oven so that was like something that we joked about for years to come but my favorite party memory is that we used to work on the nighthawk mg lola that's a callback there a, right there yeah yeah and we had a german engineer named mike gramke and i can't remember his his like assistant engineer's last name but he was his name was peter and like he was the funniest quirkiest german guy which says something because we all know the same people and he was the funniest, quirkiest German guy I think I've ever met. And we had a foosball table in the garage. And so there's so much noise. We had a inflatable bungee pole in the backyard, which was like two, two lanes with bungee cords attached to the back of it. And you put it around your waist and you're supposed to have these Velcro patches that you try to see who can make it to the farthest. And uh, we had like inflatable bounce houses and stuff. And again, there's not a child in sight. This is all for adult idiot racers. <laughs> and so we've got all sorts of noise in the backyard. We've got the house going on. We're, we're melting plastic shopping carts from Home Depot, which we use to get the, get the uh, inflatable bouncy house and all that stuff. So we get to the point where the cops are called and the garage door is open. Mike Gramke and Peter, the two Germans are playing foosball with a couple of and they're all having a great time in the garage. Well, the cops show up and they walk up to the garage and all they say is like, hi, do you live here? And Mike Gramke and Peter look right at him. And then very slowly, Peter just reaches out and presses the garage door button. And it just, <laughs> which police don't like, apparently. So then they go knock on the front door and I open the front door and I closed it right away and went, Larry. <laughs> so, so Andy comes to the door and we're like all right let's get everybody let's get everybody uh closed down mike johnson's still in the house at the time i'm pretty sure he was in the backyard on the bungee pole when this happened i'm just throwing everybody under the bus at this point uh, these are things so, we just expected so yes we're confirmation we're, finally right so we open the door back up and it's like larry Holt holding a bottle of whiskey i think 
and Mike Johnson trying to explain to cops like that it's okay. And I don't you know if you remember the name David Salins. He was like the of Belgian course, kid, course. super fast. Also, I mean, I'll probably never see this guy again. Probably one of the hardest partying guys I've ever seen in my life. And as the cops are like, okay, if you guys will tone it down a little bit, we'll let you have a little bit more fun, but we got to get you to tone it down. And as that's happening in the background, straight out of a scene of a movie, David Salins is surfing his rental car down the street of our Ridge Mill Circle, very, very nice little neighborhood we live in, and no one's driving it. So he's got one foot on the steering wheel, one foot on the door sill, and he's holding onto the roof to balance with one hand. He's got the other hand out, and he's driving by at like 10 miles an hour. And the cops are like, all right, well, we're going to get him. <laughs> and, and they never did. Like, he woke up in his hotel room the next day and had no recollection of any of this, apparently. So uh, I think he had someone else drive him home. I'll just add that there at the end. That was the petite party. Like, that was part of it. It was, like, so much fun. Everybody was there. It was the who's who of racing and ALMS back in the 03, 04 era. And it was just so, so great. Um, my last memory of that was we had that bungee cord and Gunnar Jeanette very, very smartly was like, hey, you know what we could do with this is we could take a shopping cart and attach it to the bungee pole and then we'll get like 30 people to pull the bungee cord as far as it'll go and I'll ride it back in. So it's like Tommy Milner, myself, Lally, uh, Andrew Davis, I think. Uh, we've all got the shopping cart. Dan Binks is probably pulling it with us. And we've got this thing pulled back as far as it'll go. And the bungee snaps and we all eat shit. Like all of us just fall on the ground. And we're like, oh, all right. So you saved being, a life uh, is what you did yeah, because Jeanette yeah. would have died. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's he's probably one of the hardest, you know, hardcore athletes I've ever met. The guy skydives and, and like base jumps and all that. So it was right up his alley. He fights sharks. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. But yes, death by shopping cart bungee. That's a hell yeah. of an obituary to write. Yeah, so we had to, when we returned the bungee, we just wrapped it up inside because it's a massive inflatable. I mean, this thing was literally like 25 yards long. It was massive. And so we just uh, folded it all up and gave it back, and we never heard anything about it. So I think we were okay. Mark Blundell's career as a Formula One driver turned car IndyCar driver. More recently, British Touring Car Championship pilot, driver manager, businessman extraordinaire, somewhere in there. The hard-charging Brit, number of wonderful tales to share. This one, 1991 Brabham Formula One team. Teammate Martin Brundle might know him from today's Sky Sports Formula One broadcasts. Well, the Brundell brothers, as they were once known, got into a little bit of mischief. This one here, we're going to call this Brundle Fly. So when we were at Brabham, uh, which is obviously my first year of Grand Prix, and teammates with uh, Martin, but Martin was already the established superstar. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> you, you, you're the rookie and you have to just serve your apprenticeship. So um, I traveled around for that sort of Grand Prix season in coach and uh, he was uh, pretty much, you know, always in first class or the sharp end. And, uh, you know, in Japanese, R and L are the same characters in the in their alphabet, basically. So... When you look at a boarding pass on an airline and it has the initial M and then Brundle and Blundell in Japanese, it's spelled exactly the same. So with my amazement, when I arrived at uh, Tokyo Airport to go to the Australian Grand Prix, so we've done Japan and then we're on our way to Australia, 
I was presented at the check-in desk, obviously getting there early, because when you're in coach, you have to make sure you're there a couple of hours early for an international <laughs> flight. Um, I got like presented with like 3A. And um, I'm thinking, oh, magnificent. I said, like, somebody's recognized me. I've been upgraded. I've been marvelous. Uh, little did I know until about half an hour before we're about to take off, and, uh, you know, most of the people are seated, uh, apart from... Martin Brundle, who arrives at the doorway incredibly red-faced and uh, looking quite angry, and in which case, you know, most of first class has already sat down, and he's gesturing at me to sort of say, you know, come across. And at this point, uh, a very nice uh, Japanese stewardess came up and sort of, you know, can you look at your uh, boarding pass? Can I can I check it? And they uh, they said, well, you know, there's some mistake because you uh, you know you're supposed to be in 65F or something. I said, no, 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 this is. This is my name. This is my seat. This is where I'm staying. And uh, <laughs> by this time, the rest of first class, which is all Formula One people by then, had cottoned on what was going on. And um, you know, I was getting probably a little bit of peer pressure to uh, to not move. And um, yeah, Martin did nine hours, I think, in 65F or something. Uh, <laughs> and I and I, uh, I had a very nice time up in 3C. Um, by him so yeah it was uh, great and he's never ever forgiven me for that so <laughs> i'm so hoping you got off the plane just like oh i am so rested oh, my, i mean it felt like a nine-hour massage <laughs> so relaxed <laughs> uh, but there you go these things uh, these things happen now and again uh, that was quite a funny one sometimes the race cars you love the most break your heart sometimes the ones you hate the most won't die. David Brabham, Formula One driver, sports car legend, he takes us to early 2000s, 2001 in fact, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, driving a factory Panos, LMP 07, the new hope for the front engine roadster to carry the brand into the future with success, or at least that was the idea that went severely awry. There were two accomplices in this story, Team manager David Price, co-driver Ian Magnuson. We'll let Brabs take it from here. Well, Marshall, when I think of back to the old panels days, I mean, obviously I have great memories. We had some fantastic battles with Audi and the other guys on, on the grid. Uh, and, of course, for Don Panos, his dream was, was Le Mans. And that's what the whole American Le Mans series was about. And so, you know, we went there. I, I, you know, I was with Panos for six years and we ended up, you know, doing Le Mans six times. And when I think back of one of the kind of interesting stories of, of that time uh, was uh, probably 2001 when we got the uh, LMP uh, 07 panels, which was a new car. So, yes, still front engined, but a smaller Zytec engine, completely new chassis from, from the old sort of Reynard one that was the original chassis back in 1997. And, you know, we were somewhat competitive uh, with that car. And, of course, we needed to evolve. And so a new car was built. Uh, and I remember the first time I tested it at Road Atlanta. And, of course, the old Panos was quite a big sort of lumpy thing to drive. You sat in the back 
axle, but it, you know, it was a lot of movement. And for anyone jumping in, it was a strange experience to begin with. If you were so, if you're used to with the uh, driving with the engine in the back. And then when I got into this thing for the first few laps, I felt like a go kart in comparison. I thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, so this this is going to be flying. So I'm going around as fast as I can in this little Panos. I looked at the, I was kept looking at the times, thinking I'm three seconds off the pace. I don't understand what the hell is going on. <laughs> <laughs> and it felt great the car felt like comparison it felt better it felt like we'd really made a good step forward but it was just bog slow <laughs> so when we when we got to Le Mans I mean it was dreadfully slow we were 10 seconds off the pace uh it was just horrendous there were just two key p- components horsepower not enough horsepower from the four liter Zytec engine that we had uh and not enough aerodynamic downforce or efficiency uh, they, they were the two big key problems with the car. And, of course, at Le Mans, if you have anything like that, you, you, you're you stuffed. There's nothing nothing you can do. So it was a case of just obviously being there and, and learning. You know, we were still learning about the car and how, how can we improve what we've got. And, of course, when we got to Le Mans, the reliability wasn't quite what we were hoping leading up to a, a race like Le Mans. But, uh, you know, we, we, we went in there with wide eyes open and, and try and, you know, fix whatever we could as we went along. Now, as the, as the race kind of started and we got going, uh, yes, we were dreadfully slow. Uh, we weren't going to make any impact in the race. We just had to, to get through. Uh, but one of the issues we, we were actually starting to see was the, uh, the wheels were actually coming off the car. <laughs> Not what you want it. Well, I was going to say over 200 mile an hour, but this thing wasn't over 200 mile an hour because it just never got there. But it was still fast enough to have a big accident if a, if, a, if a damn wheel came off. So there was a lot of discussions going on in the pits. You know, what do we do? What do we do? And, and of course, you're in race mode. You don't want to give up. You keep, you keep going. Yeah. And Jan and I were, were kind of looking at each other going, dude, I don't really want to get in this bloody thing. You know, really, your wheels are coming off it. And you imagine Yan, you know, cigarette in his mouth at the time, you know, yeah, I don't want to drive it either, perhaps, you know, so what do we do? And I said, I tell you what, when I get in the car next, I'll bloody turn the thing off and that's it. We'll just pull out. So we both walked over to Dave Price, who was running it. And I said, you know, we both said, Dave, how about we, um, you know, next time we just pull it because this is just not safe. It's not a good environment. And he says, I don't care what you do, but I don't want to know anything about it. So... He walked off because he was fed up with it as well. So I got in the car and I knew exactly because I'd been thinking about it when I was in the stint, like in the car before, where I was going to pull off. So I jump in the car, I go off, and of course it was the old uh, Dunlop section um, through turns one, two, three, down down there towards Tet Rouge. It was the, the old one. And you came over the brow and I turned the engine off and I coasted and I knew exactly where to pull over to the right. There was an opening. Uh, the marshals then pulled me behind and I'm, you know, as I'm slowing down, also I'm on the radio saying, guys, the engine's just cut off. The engine's just cut off. And because only, the only three people that knew about it was me, da- um, um, Magnuson and, and Dave Price. And, of course, the engineers going, what, what? Okay, uh, uh, right, um, uh, let's have a look at the data. You know, and they couldn't see anything. And, and of course, the other problem we had at the time, if you were on the starter motor for any sort of length of period, it died. So I'm, I'm sitting there. It's starting to rain. I've got my, foot, my, my, my finger on the radio button saying, 
uh, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? They said, well, I try this. I try it. No, no, not working. And I, and I would do the starter motor to show them that I was trying to start the car. And the thing, the thing was going, rrr, 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 rrr. I thought, well, this thing's going to die soon. So that'll be it anyway. So, and the thing just kept turning over every time they said, I'll oh, try this, try that. I'm thinking this thing's not going to die. So I went round and round and round again. And I sat there and the rain got heavier and heavier and heavier. This sounds and miserable. Thi- yeah. And I'm sitting there going, and I just sat there and, I, and there was a bit of silence. And then I just had this m- massive guilt feeling go through me thinking, what are you doing? You've never given up in your life and you're literally giving up. There were good reasons, but I, I just felt terrible, terrible. And, and then I just thought, damn it. So I turned the bloody ignition on, hit the starter button, the bloody thing started and immediately. <laughs> I jump on the radio, said, oh, the car's now, yeah, I'm good. Uh, I don't know what happened, but I'm off, you know. And I went out and I did, did some laps. It was pissing down with rain. Dave Price gets on the radio and said, just to let you know, you're one of the fastest on the track. <laughs> by that time we were so far behind i mean we were laps and laps and laps behind anyway because we were just so uncompetitive and fixing stuff and whatever and of course when i got in magnuson wouldn't talk to me (laughs) he didn't want to get in and drive the thing and then it wasn't long before our sister car lost another wheel so that was it we we literally just pulled the plug on the on the on the whole thing the decision was then easily made but i've never done that in my life but uh yeah i mean i can laugh about it now but when i think about sitting there thinking oh my god what am i doing you know it wasn't a great feeling and you managed to piss off magnus and, and dave in your acting chops too were uh it sounded like they're pretty good but the car that was trying to kill you uh, wouldn't die so no exactly Oh, it's, you know, oh god you know normally this thing would die after about three attempts at trying to start it and it just wouldn't wayne taylor's coming to america story is a classic the south african who held dreams of reaching formula one saw those aspirations rerouted to north america imsa gtp the salad days in the late 1980s early 1990s factory invitation chevy intrepid become a champion driving a mazda for jim downing 1994 in IMSA's WSC category. But before then, big dollars, big respect, not quite. The road here was not easy. It was a very difficult road because um, there was really no racing in South Africa. And to get to Europe, you really needed money. Um, I did spend a year doing Group C, um, the year that Schumacher and Jochen Mass and they were all racing. The uh, those Mercedes um, sports cars. I was running a Spath Cosworth, and spent a year in London where Ricky was born, um, which was in 1989. But literally at that point, um, I knew I had a sign contract for a year, and at the end of that year, I managed to get three races in North America, and on the third race, which was uh, Del Mar. I was in a private spice and, and got the pole and a lot of teams. It was the days of Jeff Brabham and Gurney and Jaguar and Toyota and all the big factory teams. But um, as loyal as I am, I had offers from a couple of the big teams, but I thought I should be loyal to spice. And then I realized 
that at the end of Del Mar, it was the end of the year, my wife and Ricky had been born, went back to South Africa. And I went back to South Africa thinking, now what am I going to do? Um, but I just fell in love with racing in America so much that my my head was clearly set to come and race in America and try and be a success over here. And the Formula One route was definitely out of my head at that point. And sports cars was where I felt that I, I could contribute most and where I could do it for a longer period of time. But I can assure you that when Shay and I arrived here with Ricky, I mean, I came here for, we had literally no money. I think we had like $10,000 to our name when we sold everything up in South Africa and arrived here in 1990. And I had a contract with Jim Miller, which was the Miller of Pratt and & Miller. And Jim, all I had signed was a 10-race uh, season of $3,000 a race. And, and and I thought I thought I thought I was you know this is just fantastic to race an IMSA GTP three thousand dollars a race <laughs> yeah three thousand dollars a race for ten races and uh, you know I never I don't know why but still to this day can't believe that I did all this because when I think about it I get nervous and scared like was I completely crazy to bring my wife and son and 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 Jordan then. Um, getting ready to pop out at some point. Do you realize and that you and I made the same amount of money in 1990, except for I was a race car mechanic? And I'm not kidding. I made $30,000 for the year. You made $30,000 to do the complete IMSA GTP season, Wayne. Yes, yes. And you know what did I know? And so, but Jim Miller said to me that, don't you know, they're building this Intrepid and, it moved me up to 75000 a year, and of course, I was ecstatic. Went ahead, built a house with literally no money. I don't even know why the bank even loaned me the money at that point. And so during 91, in the Intrepid, I got a call from Jim about, I don't know, a third of the way into the season. And he said to me, look, I, I've got some news. He said, um, Chevrolet and us, we're going to go to a factory program in 92, but um, we are not going to include you. So in 91, Tommy Kendall and I were driving the Intrepid. But three races in, Jim said to me that um, my contract would be in play. He called me and he said, listen, uh, GM want to go down to one car and they, they want to go with Tommy Kendall. And I'm afraid, you know, I, I can't change it, but I can guarantee you that you'll be paid until the end of this year. That was 91. From $3,000 a race to what I thought was going to be a long-term factory program ended up being a one-year program. And it was a really unfortunate year when Tommy had such a bad accident. I remember, I think, yes, I was the only one that actually won a race in the Intrepid. It was a great year, but I suddenly dawned on me, what the heck am I going to do now? And I had two kids and nobody wants to hire me. And I'm pretty much out in the streets. So... You know, I just said, that's it. I'm not going to be put in this position anymore. I'm going to go out and find the money, and I'm going to take the money. I'm going to go and choose some teams, and I've, my goals are to, to win championships and win 24 hours and win the big races and championships. And so um, it was really, really tough days, 90 through 96, I think. Yeah, right up to 96 was really, really tough. But I never gave up, and I never, ever thought of – doing anything else you know somehow i was going to make this work buckle in for a long and winding story from mr spin and win himself danny sullivan 
winner of the 1985 Indianapolis 500, IndyCar champion of 1988, as he tells us during an abortive attempt to become a Formula One driver, if it weren't for an Italian clothing manufacturer, IndyCar fans might have never known his name. While sitting in a storage facility, constructing a shelf, during a recent move, Danny leads us into topics of Formula Ford, Formula Atlantics, Crazy Joe Stamola, F1 team owner Ken Tyrrell, a surprise contract, an amount of money to become a Formula One driver that is simply shocking, a non-championship race at Brands Hatch, his pal Russell Wood, curry dinner, and drunk driving a Formula One car. It's safe to say there's no one like Danny Sullivan. A lot of this stuff is X-rated, but I'm driving the Doug Shearson Domino's Pizza Hot One. And this might be too, I don't know if I really want to tell all of it. Oh, come on, Sullivan. Uh, That would have been 84. Four. 84. Before you went to Penske. Right. So do you know how all of that stuff came about, by the way? I don't. So, well, let's go back then and I'll give you a, my, my background was really European racing. I did almost all my racing in early stages, all that stuff. I did it all um in europe and i in 19 when i went there in 1972 i'm just giving you a little quick summary in 1972 i did um i was over there racing and i brought my formula ford back from that i had in england but they had put those it was a really aerodynamic it was called a falconer body yep this car and the only time i ever raced i raced it at daytona and they used the oval and the thing and it was like a november race and I brought the car over to sell it as well as to, to race it. So so I brought the car over, and Tom Pompelli, I think they paid for part of it anyway. I brought it over, and I, I did this race. And that was the only time that I really raced in America. I did a couple of Daytona races and later on where I drove for some guy in a Lancia Stratos. Anatoly Aratunov. Yes! From, from Tulsa, <laughs> Oklahoma. Okay. So I didn't have a big, I didn't have a big racing history in the U.S. So I wasn't really, I did an Atlantic in 1978. And, and again, with, with this guy, what was his name? Don Sneeder. And he was supposed to be, he had been Price Cobb's guy. And he was supposed to be one of the real great guys, uh, knew how to set up a car and everything. And believe it or not, our race shop was in Locust Valley, New York, and which is like one of the most expensive places out on Long Island. And Smoking Joe Stamola. Joe! Had sh- he had a shop in the middle of downtown, okay? He had an old building that had like one of those big drive-ins. You know, it used to be kind of a car dealership type thing. And Smoking and Joe, and we... we we operated out of there. Well, the reason that Schneiders wanted to be there was that his he was some guy in the series' wife, and they lived in Long Island because the sponsorship came out of Texas. I can't make this shit up, okay? So anyway, so fast forward, and I had an okay year, but, I mean, Rossberg was in the thing. You know, Price Cobb, Ray Hall, Howdy Holmes, everybody. But you got to, I got to know all the guys like Doug Shearson and, you know, Fred Opert. And all the team, Fred, good team owners. Fred. Yeah, and I knew Fred from, from really from some of the Formula 2 stuff I've done in, in Europe. So, because he used to run Keke over there. 
Most of you remember that. And so, so I had those connections. And I'd been doing I'd been doing the F1 and 83 for Tyrrell. And how that drive came around, I was actually a gopher for Tyrrell um, because my mentor, Frank Faulkner, Dr. Frank Faulkner from up in Berkeley, Frank had been um, Ken's best friend and so forth over the years. And so I lived with Ken and Nora Tyrrell for some years, When I, I mean some months when I first went to Europe. I'm painting a picture. So I got a test for in 1982, I got a test for Tyrrell um, with people like Stefan Johansson, Debbie Gabbiani, Bruno Giacomelli. These were all the guys back in the day. They were, they were all the hot guys, you know, in the day. So anyway, I do the test and it was really funny because I, I was watching all these guys and they're all setting up the pedals and steering and everything. But I knew, remember, I knew all, because I'd been a gopher, so I knew all the mechanics. And Tyrrell had sprung a contract on me when I got there, and Garvin Brown was with me, and he had sprung a, a contract on me and said um, said that, uh, what did he tell? Oh, and it was, it was so prohibitive. I said, Garvin, he, he comes in the motorhome or in the transport. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm changing my uh, clothes. I'm not going to sign this contract. I said, I can't afford to eat. It was, it was $10,000 the first year, 15 the second, 25 the third, and I had to cover all my own expenses. <laughs> to get, I couldn't have gotten to the race. I'd have had to ride bicycles to the race. And Garvin said, oh, don't worry. If you get the contract, I'll pay for everything. And I said, okay, which wasn't a real big confidence booster when somebody says it like that. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, I get the drive. I go, I mean, I go down, I do the test. I'm the last guy out. It's freezing cold at Paul Ricard. And I get the test. I get the last, the car. And I go quicker than everybody on every lap. So Terrell's not one big on words. So he basically says, okay, we need you to come to a test at Rio, whatever, in January. So I go do the test. And I was so prepared. I got down there early. I spent all this time you know, getting ready. I was trained. I was all fit. And they tested for eight days. And I never got in the car until the last day. And he gave me, I went out and did, I think, like three or four laps on control tires. And that was it. And then he did. And then he put on, remember the qualifying tires? Yep. Remember these things were good for one lap? Monsters. He put me on these qualifying tires, but he put me on a used set. I didn't even get the new set they put me on the used set of qualifiers and i was only i was only like two tenths off of mckaylee on the used set off on in one lap and marshall let me tell you something when i'm talking about one lap you go down this straightaway the old rio you came oh, out yeah. of a, a bank corner well that corner at the end was mega fast it was mega fast okay and on the qualifying tires don't laugh you come down the straight and you've never lifted in top gear Jesus. Okay, scary. Okay, especially because the learning curve, as you can imagine, is crazy, right? When I left there, Tyrrell goes, um, well, I guess you, you elected yourself or you, I forget the term he used. He said, you, you've got, he didn't tell me, okay, you've got the drive. He said, well, basically you selected yourself. I doing that. So I was like, well, does that mean I got the drive? <laughs> so, so anyway, that's how it started. Now, what happened was the next year, because Benetton and Benetton was really happy with me because they were trying to get bigger in the American market and all that sort of stuff. 
So they were really happy with me and the American market and everything. And I had that great race with, and this is a story I was going to tell you. I had this great race at Brands Hatch in the non-championship race. Well, Tyrrell, which is typical Tyrrell, he calls me and he says to me, uh, McKaylee can't do the non-championship race. Can you? He said, so I need you to come over and do it. I said, okay, uh, great. That sounds cool to me. Well, this is Tuesday, which means I can't fly until Wednesday because there's just no flights. I mean, by the time he called me, there's no flight way I can get on flight. So I arrived in England from California on Thursday morning and practices is the next morning. So that jet lag stuff. I didn't have any choice on that. But the story I was going to tell you is that, so I had some good friends. And of course, I'm on my own expenses. So I've got to do virtually whatever on my own my own expenses. Well, I had a longtime friend, Russell Wood. This guy was an amazing Formula 3 driver. But he did it as a hobby. He should have been a racer like in the, you know, 60s. Because, because he was just, he beat James Hunt he beat them all. He beat all those guys in the day when they were all doing Formula 3. So here's the thing about Russell. Russell really used to like to go out at night before the race and have a curry dinner. So I'm staying with he and Jane. They were really close friends. We go out for a curry dinner. I got like, you know, I ended up getting kind of drunk, you know, because we're drinking a little wine. <laughs> Okay, and there was a little bit more wine because our table wasn't ready. Well, I was a little hungover when the race showed up the next day. <laughs> then I had that great race and almost passed, got around the outside of Rossburg, but I didn't make, I couldn't make the complete pass. Ken said after the race, he said, "Well, I don't know what you did last night, but keep doing it." Oh. <laughs> okay, and I thought, okay, well, if he only knew that I was shit faced. Anyway, yeah. it happened to me once, but when I, but then when they, when they pulled the plug because Benetton wanted a turbo, they wanted a turbo car, okay, because it was the beginning of the turbo era. And, and Ken was the, that, the last of the holdout to the Cosworth naturally well, aspirated V8s. He kept thinking that he was going to get a deal from Ford. And the Benetton money was pretty good. The Benetton money was, was pretty strong, you know. And Ken thought that he was going to get a deal from Ford. And I remember at Silverstone in the BRDC sitting down with Ken and Tolman. You know, they had the Tolman group. And I'm sitting down there with him and saying, look, do the thing with Brian Hart, Okay. Brian had a really great little two-liter, I mean, a little turbo engine that was really strong. And I said, if you spend 100,000 bucks or 100,000 pounds each, he's got enough money to do the development on it. And Ken wouldn't do it. And that Tolman became, remember, that he, so Benetton ended up doing the deal with Tolman because he had a turbo engine, and they ended up buying Tolman, and that became the Benetton team. So, so Ken kind of missed the boat. So when he lost the sponsorship, I was I had come back to the states. Ken was um, he was like Danny. I don't know if I'm going to be able. I might have to take a pay drive because I can't do it without the Benetton money. And so I said, Oh shit! Okay, what do I do now? I was in L.A. and I stopped in because they had the end of the season Indy car uh, race there. When they did that, I thought, okay, I swung through there, and I saw Doug Shears. And he said to me, he said, Howdy's not going to keep racing Howdy Holmes. next year. He said, what do you want to do? Well, he said, do you want to race for me for next year? 
how in the world do you line that up of all the things that happened? But you know, if I hadn't, if I hadn't made that connection with, I, I mean, with Doug through my land days, Ken was was good to him, but he said he wouldn't tell me until he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to tell me the deal until February. And I I sat there with Frank Faulkner. I went to Berkeley after that, and sat there with Frank Faulkner for a long time. We sat up for not, you know, two nights in a row doing nothing but debating what to do. And uh, that was it. You know, that's how it started. I did have one with Doug where I ended up doing the, the Michigan 500 one night. And I went to Domino's Pizza Party. I had to go back into Ann Arbor. And I hadn't eaten. We'd been practicing all day. And I hadn't eaten. And uh, long story short, <laughs> I think I got drunk that night. <laughs> <laughs> and, then I, and then I was fourth in the race the next day, you know. I thought, well, maybe there's a story here, you know. So anyway, but uh, but that but that's how that whole thing came about. That's how I got into IndyCar. I didn't even really know much about what cart was or IndyCar or anything for that matter. Didn't know much about it. Really didn't, you know. <laughs> it was just, I mean, in my focus, I was much more of a Europhile if you like to try to go back to race in Europe, you know, because that's where my background had been. You know, I'd spent I'd spent my first seven eight years over there trying to, to trying to make it. You know, and had so. Benetton decided to stay with Tyrrell, uh, we may not wow. have had Danny Sullivan, the IndyCar driver. How you crazy! Know, that's true. That's true. Jim Busby's one of my favorite storytellers, and that's already piled on top of his amazing career as a team owner and driver in IMSA, a drag racer, off-road racer, open-wheel racer, done so many things throughout his career. We take a trip back to the late 1960s in Jim's native Southern California, working for Charlie Hayes, renowned race car driver and fabricator himself, about a twin-engine dragster, engines that were made famous in Speedway. We'll call this one Pallets of Snakes. And no... I can't pretend to understand how these kinds of things actually happened. I do a Formula Ford race at Riverside on a short course, and I win the race, and so on. And then I do a sports car, and a Chevron B16, and I win that race. And I don't have the budget to go professional racing, so these are FCCA. And I get, then I get banged up in a Formula 5000 car at Riverside, hit the wall outside of turn one wind up in the hospital, some paralysis, which I thank God got over, broke my back in two places, neck and one. They fixed me up. Uh, I went back to work at Charlie Hayes's and they built the twin engine Ford Dragster because I was so bored I had nothing to do. And all then, the, and the IndyCar had outlawed those four cam Ford engines and made the stock block the standard. And then all of a sudden, the owners complained so bad that they had to reinstitute, reinstigate the big four cam Fords. Well, when they knocked them out, I thought they were so sexy that I wanted one or two. So for 7500 bucks, I bought seven Ford four-cam motors and all the spare parts I could buy from A.J. Foyt, who was who was now put out of the engine business, and stacked them up in the garage and thought, I'll put two of these in the dragster. Wow. So I did. I've won quite a few races in my career and made uh, an overall impression in motorsports and lots of different disciplines from the Bonneville Salt Flats on. But I am more famous for that car that ran one, sorry, one race. And in three runs, we got it sorted out. It felt good. I went home. That night, I get a call from Leonard Foss 
King of Lawn Lawnmowers IndyCar owner. And he says, you're the smartest guy in town, Buffy. I said, who is this? And he said, this is Leonard Foss. I own King of Lawn Lawnmowers and I run IndyCars. And I said, so why does that make me smart? And he said, because you own all the engines. <laughs> I said, you're shitting me. <laughs> wow. No. You've got <laughs> monopoly on the these what have become iconic have Indy 5, late, you know, mid, late 60s Indy 500 motors. And I had pallets of them in spare parts and crankshafts and uh, sand bent uh, stainless steel bundle of snakes exhausts that went out the top of those Indy cars. <sighs> I bought them for $100 a piece from AJ Foyt because oh. they were obsolete. It was throwaway stuff. And I had them stacked on pallets. And then I was working at Charlie Hayes's doing these little engines. And I was made okay money, enough to buy this junk. One of the engines I bought from a guy who was down in San Diego, and he had it in his gardening shed standing on the flywheel. And I went down there in my pickup. We loaded it in. I drove it back, put it in the pile. And so anyway, after the race, I, I digress here a little bit because this is a fun part of the story <laughs> but the uh I, I mean, i'm standing on there on the phone and I, I said i said well mr foss i'm flattered but what 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 do you want from me and he says i need your engines all of them i said well are you aware that that i built a dragster and ran it yesterday at the winter nationals and continue to run it and it used to have a blown chrysler in it now it's got two fords in it that i built with help from Bruce Crower and Ed Donovan and A.J. Foyt, and a lot of people helped me accumulate the shit for this thing and build it. He says, I thoroughly understand. I was at the Winter Nationals yesterday and saw your car with two engines that I really have to have. And I said, well, I cut the top of the pistons off by se- down to, uh, by 70 thousands, and we run it on 80% nitromethane. And now you IndyCar guys qualify them on about 30% but with the standard compression. He said, well, we got, we can get pistons. Don't worry about that. And I said, well, what do you got in mind here? He said, I don't have it in mind. It's a done deal. My truck is on its way to your facility. I know where you are. And I just had a little 500-square-foot shop in Costa Mesa on 17th Street. And he says, I know where you are. We're on our way. My truck's on the way, and the guy's got $10,000, and he's going to take all of your motors, and I know what you're in them here. I said, no, you, you don't know what I'm in. I'm, I, I built the car. I've got an investment in the car. I, I, I rebuilt the engines myself in my shop because I, had, I got the manuals from Foyt, and we actually built them right there. He said, well, no, I'm going to bring you $10,000, and you're going to put everything in the back of my truck, and we're going to go away. It's in cash, and you're good to go. So I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, like I said, my guy's on his way down there. He's got $15,000 in cash, and he's going to pick up all the engines, and, and I'm going to own all this stuff, and you're going to be a happy guy, and that's that. And I said, no, I don't think so. He said, you know, like I said before, I've got 20000 bucks in this guy's hand, and he's on his way down there to get the engines. And I said, I can't do that. I mean, why would I do that? I know what they're worth now. I said, look, I'm on my way. He's on their way. He's got $30,000 in his pocket. <laughs> I said, really? And he's, you know, I remember what $30,000 was in those days. It was a hell of a lot of money. And he said, really? And I said, I don't know. He says, I said, let me think about it. I'll talk to you tomorrow. He says, no, I said, my, he said, my truck is on its way and he has the cash in his hands. I said, does he have $35,000 in his hands? And he said, yes, he does. 
He'll be there momentarily. I said, no problem. The motors will be sitting at the front door. And I, my cousin and I jerked the motors out of that car, took all the pallets, shoved them out the front door. We had a 392 Hemi Chrysler on the, with a rod sticking out the side of it, a blown that came out of the dragster before we converted it. And I pushed that out the door too, made him take it all. And he drove, he drove away with that. And I went to the bank and paid off my house. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Cash. I, I had paid nineteen thousand five hundred bucks for my first house. I owed I owed you know five or ten grand on it. I walked into the bank, paid off my house with cash, put the rest in the bank, and the rest is history. Bruce Canapa's name is better known today as someone who restores and sells all manner of priceless road cars and race cars. But before that, he's better known as a man who spent a lot of time earning a lot of success sprint cars off-road racing it's there where he met the mirrors gang some guy named rick thanks to bruce we're going to wander back to 1979 daytona 24 hours and rick mirrors very first sports car race that 1979 year rather important for the rocket he'd go on to win the indy 500 for the first time win his first indycar championship all for roger penske how did the year start though the high banks of daytona figuring out a wacky rear engine German sports car with Bruce, Monty Shelton, these rookies, bit of a ragtag group. How'd they finish? Take a listen. Well, the Rick part was because, you know, he was from Bakersfield, as you know, but we've known each other. Oh, my God. We knew each other from early 70s, I'd say. We, we go back quite a ways. When we thought about doing this, uh, I purchased a used 934 and a half, and, and a, a used 934 and a half then was a 20-some thousand dollar car. They weren't a lot of money. I bought that car from George Dyer Jr., and uh, and it didn't have many races on it, and he just didn't like it after driving an RSR. He really didn't like the single turbo, et cetera. So when I got that car, um, somewhere Rick and I were doing something on the motorcycle ride, and we were just talking, and I told him what we were going to do, and you know, somehow he decided, yeah, I want to, I want to do that too. I want to be part of that. So that's how Rick got on board, and then. And then Monty, I was, uh, you know, I knew Monty, obviously, because he was a Portland guy and he raced out here and and um, and had a lot of seat time in the Porsches. And and Monty was, uh, you know, he I, I don't even remember how it got to that Monty became the, the other part of this. But somehow Monty and I started talking about it and he ended up being the other driver with us. So the three of us with no Daytona experience went there. Uh, the team was pretty organized. We had the guys from Jerry Woods helping us. And uh, uh, we had my guys, which really were guys used to doing sprint cars and Pikes Peak. We had my group. <laughs> and because that was our background. And, and we had them and we had uh, Monty's guys who were used to smoking weed. And, um, and somehow we got through 24 hours. It was a good week. And we, and, and we enjoyed it the whole time. We actually, it was, it was a fun event for us. Well, the, the first thing was, was Rick and I, we, we took our, we were in a rent car and we, we drove out to turn three and, uh, to watch, you know, we hadn't been there. So we turned, we drove out to turn three to watch these guys drive into the banking, get a sense of what that was all about. Back then there was no bus stop. You were flat from two to three. Um, so they carried, you know, they were carrying 200 plus mile an hour speeds going into three. So. That was the first thing we did was just drive out and just kind of look at it. And we looked at each other and remember we kind of said, oh, my God, these guys, these cars are going faster here. <laughs> so, so, OK, well, it seems to work. So we'll, we'll figure that out. And then uh, 
And then the 934 and a half was, you know, it, it was a more difficult car to drive. It didn't have the, the, the lowered ex- suspension points that a 35 had. And I mean, lowered, they had, they had dropped the tubs down oh, more than two inches on all the, on all the mounting points on the suspension and got the center of gravity down and which helped that whole car with the motor hanging out the back dramatically. And of course it had bigger brakes on a 35 and it had a twin turbo engine on a 35. Um, you, you could run a single, but not, almost everybody ran a twin at that point to get rid of the lag and it made more power and had adjustable sway bars. I mean, it was, it was really a, the 935 was a, was a much more refined car by, by 77, 78. And of course this was 79 and by 79 Porsche had really changed the 935. They had flipped the gearbox upside down and, um, and then had bigger brakes again and done a bunch of things. And, and, and that's what most of the field was at that point, because the early customers had received their cars, you know, uh, everything from, from the Whittingtons had their car, Interscope had their car, Moretti had his car, um, uh, Peter Gregg had his car. Um, and then there was, you know, the, the, the foreign contingent that came over. So there was a number of 79 935s, which were the last of the factory cars there at that time. I, I didn't get my, my 935, um, till July. And that was only because of, of a few races where Porsche thought we were capable and, and offered to build me one. That's the car that I raced in Monterey. I've had that since new, but anyway, so the 934 and a half was a handful. The ride height was such that you had to be very comfortable with with oversteer. You had to be very comfortable with with uh, how to drive the oversteer, which was really drive it with the throttle. And for myself, for twenty four hours, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was a little nervous going through the banking with a with a higher ride height. And uh, and then on top of that, you had the lag. Now the lag the lag at Daytona is a little bit less of an issue because it really affects you in down into turn one on the infield and then you know in, in the in, in the infield part of the road course the lag is somewhat of an issue but it's not an issue obviously on the anywhere else on the on the oval so so it was really just getting used to kind of you know having the ass in chase you around all the time because that's what those cars did and and the good thing was was that you know my background was mostly dirt cars you know modifieds and sprint cars and that's how you drive those all the time i mean period i mean tell guys you know, you, you steer those cars with a throttle and the steering wheels for hanging on to when you flip over. So, so. <laughs> you know, there's there's this guy you mentioned, by the way, Rick Mears. He went on to win the kart championship that year, sit on pole for Indy and win his very first Indy 500. So if we're talking about setting the stage for 1979, your podium certainly was an indicator that big things are on the way for Rick. Anything he did in a car... Uh, did not require a tremendous amount of stress or effort. Um, he was focused, he was comfortable, and and he enjoyed driving. I can relate to that because I enjoy driving. And um, and it's and of all the things I've tried to do in my life when I played football and, and when I played sports, including football and different things in high school and whatever else. I mean, all those things I had to work at really hard. And when I got in a car, I didn't have to work so hard at driving a car. So. And Rick was at a level, you know, way beyond that, obviously. And uh, he was just comfortable in a car. He, he just got in it and he understood it and he drove it and he did it without a whole lot of fanfare. He just was, you know, it was a natural thing for Rick to do. Yeah, 79 kind of proved, kind of showed the whole world that in a hurry, didn't it? it uh, no matter what he drove that year, 
he was uh, he was on top of his game. And and honestly, the pace we ran at, at the 24-hour Daytona, and and everybody did a great job in in the in the whole effort. We we had to change an axle in the middle of the night, and we had a we had a wheel that didn't get on the dowel pins correctly in a pit stop. We lost a wheel and and had to limp around back to the pit to fix that. And and if you if you took either one of those things out of the equation, we would have been second. We were really having a pretty comfortable race, and 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 everybody driving the car was a huge part of that. I mean, Rick did an awesome job. He just there's that old saying: you go slow to go fast, and and um, we all agreed. We all were. Of, of the same mindset. It's a 24-hour race. We, we need to go fast enough to, to try and win, but we also need to go slow enough to not have anything go wrong so that we're there in, at the end to, to have that opportunity. And we decided that, you know, shift points, what we would do and and RPMs and, and how often to skip a gear if you're on the back and different things to make sure we save the car to, to finish the race. And, you know, back then it was a little different. Today's race cars, they can run them flat out for 24 hours they don't really have to be careful with them you know they're they're pretty much engineered now to go the distance without a problem back then you had to you had to if you wore the car out and stuff you weren't going to finish so you know rick was one of those guys that it was just so natural to him he just he was easy on a car monty was experienced and and uh and i was just a sprint car driver so i was <laughs> so I was learning the whole time. So we had a great time. We really had a great time. Exactly what you would order. And if you sat down and said, you know, what do you want to do? This has got to be it, right? You know, and, and that's when you could do it with your friends helping on the team and a and bunch of guys thrown together. And of course, today it's it's different than that, as we all know. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a serious organization now to go racing, whatever you do. But uh, back then it was like uh, you could you could literally say, okay, we're going to go to Daytona and do the 24-hour and grab a bunch of guys and go. And that's exactly what we did. And the other thing was Jerry Woods and that group was a huge help because they had been there a lot of times at that point. They'd, you know, with the Dick Barber effort and stuff, they had they had more laps around there than almost anybody with, with the multiple cars they ran. And, and, and really, Jerry w- was a big part of our deal in that he basically said, these are the lap times you need to run. This is the things you need to do. He, he really laid it all out for us. We weren't, we weren't blind about what we were doing. We, we had a, a path to follow from, from his experience. So, and, and the Garrison guys at that time, they were, they were a great operation. They, they knew what they were doing. So they were, they were helping us too. And, and uh, they were a huge help to us actually. So none of us had done it, not myself, not Rick and Monty Shelton was the third guy and he hadn't done the 24 hour. And we went there and we got third overall right out of the box. While searching for a direction in life, the negatives can sometimes steer you towards an unexpected epiphany. As Lynn St. James tells us an IMSA driving for the Ford factory wanted to reach the top IMSA's GTP category. So she hatched a plan involving Michael Cranifus, then boss of Ford Performance, a Ford GTP probe, Talladega. A few years later, back at Talladega, 1988, a Ford Thunderbird NASCAR Cup car, creating something that folks weren't expecting, women as speed demons. We also get to hear about Humpy Wheeler, the famed stock car promoter, Charlotte Speedway circuit boss, who wrote a book called The Mechalete? Anyways, as Lynn tells us, Getting to the mountaintop occasionally involves going in circles. 
1985 was actually a really, really good year for me in racing. It was when I had my first pro win with Ford at Road America in GTO in a Mustang, driving with Johnny Jones, and then actually went on to Watkins Glen and won there in GTO driving alone, solo, and not with the intention of doing that, um, and then had a really good run at Daytona with a victory there that was taken away from me. But anyway, it was a good good year. And, you know, as a uh, aspirational, always on the gas person, um, I was trying to figure out what was next for me. And, and I knew what I wanted, which was to race in the ultimate overall category, which was the prototypes. And Ford, of course, had this fabulous probe. And I was trying to convince Michael Cranifus that I could drive that car. And so I had this brochure that I had picked up a number of years ago at Talladega, um, and it had this women's record at Talladega, that women's close course speed record was 186 miles an hour set by Janet Guthrie in one of her qualifying attempts. And then, of course, the overall record was Mark Donahue at that point of like 230 miles an hour. And I said, I almost wish that they hadn't published a women's record because it made us look like we were really slow and the guys were really fast. And that had been bug up my crawl for a long time. So I thought a way to convince Michael Cranifus that I could drive the probe competitively and to have an opportunity to get in the probe um, that we could, I convinced him we could take the probe to Talladega and get the women's record and get the record much closer to Mark Donahue's 230. So long story short, he agreed, talked to Zach Speed and they, Ian Dawson was running Zach Speed, I think at the time, the crew chief or team manager. And so they, on the way to Daytona for the finale, they took the probe and stopped at Talladega. It was organized, sanctioned by FIA through IMSA. It was a pretty big deal. They had a film crew there and invited media come out and there was a lot of pressure and they actually did some testing. Doc Bundy at the time was also part of the of the Ford probe program. So, and I knew Doc. And so we went to Talladega and we were somewhat disappointed with the end results. I went 201.44, I think it was. So we broke 200 miles an hour, but I mean, the car and myself would have been so much more capable to go so much quicker, but the deal was done. They were all pleased that we went over 200 miles an hour. And considering the fact that Zach Speed didn't really do much different to the car, then to just set it up to go to Daytona. And even though Daytona is similar to um, Talladega, it's really not as similar as people think. I mean, it's it's so much bigger and so much more wide open. And that was my first time at Talladega, my first time setting a women's close course speed record. From a power standpoint, it did feel a bit like a sled. I mean, it, it got up there to, to, you know, and I mean, again, I don't even know if they had it geared right because it got up to speed pretty quickly. But once it leveled out, I mean, it was really, it was a flat curve up there. And the car was really porpoising. It wasn't moving around from, I mean, the downforce was good, but it was, the car was porpoising a lot. I mean, just remember that it was, and so it was not stable. It'd be different if it was planted and we could have just continued to take downforce off, but we couldn't take the downforce off because the car was moving around a lot. So and again, it was, there was no risk. We wanted, I mean, there was not a lot of desire to take many risks because the car was on the way to Daytona. So, um, you know, we really had to just dial out, I mean, dial in what we could dial in and dial out what we could dial out. And, um, but it was, it was uneventful in the, in the power range experience, but it was very eventful of, of just keeping the car on the track, surprisingly enough. So, um, those were my recollections of it. But I think what was the result, for not only the number, was the fact that 
because I gave really good feedback um, and the team confirmed that, that Michael was convinced that I could be in the car. And in reality, in 1986, I got to race the probe. So, you know, for me, it was an accomplishment and I'm glad that I did it because it was something that enabled me to get in that car and, and really work hard and be competitive when we got to some of the other tracks, like real road course tracks. So then you have this next opportunity Bill Elliott obviously had uh, gained fame for his closed course work. Tell me about the next opportunity or set the stage for that. The probe was cool, but the next one was like, oh, wow, this could be kind of wild. Well, I got to know Bill, obviously, when we ran um, in 87, we ran and won the 24 hours of Daytona and teammates. And and of course, Bill was on an all-time high after being the awesome Bill from Dawsonville and, and winning the, the, the bonus, <clears throat> Winston bonus, I think it was. I also then observed that, you know, I was privy to a lot of the things going on at Ford Racing. And one of those is they were really focusing in their direction a lot more into the NASCAR oval track world than they were the sports car world. And so I thought for the longevity of me being able to stay involved with Ford Racing, I thought, you know, maybe I ought to look at driving stock cars. Um, I met with Humpy Wheeler, who kind of convinced me that I needed to do a total download and forget everything I knew about racing and going on, going into a sonic sound room and get rid of all my knowledge of sports car racing to learn how to be a stock car driver. That was an interesting experience. Oh, yeah. we got to oh, stay yeah. there for a sec, Lynn. Tell, tell me about this. This is almost like some cult-like, we're going to wash your brainwaves <laughs> out and replace you with Lynn from Alabama or something like that. I mean, that I, I set up, I literally was in a discovery mode of thinking, can I really drive a stock car? And so I set up a meeting with Humpy. I mean, who's the ultimate, you know, promoter and knowledge about, about uh, you know, Talladega, not about Talladega, but I mean about stock cars. And I swear to God, Marshall, it's a hoot. I, I go into his office. I step into his office. Something comes thrashing at me in the air. And it was, he threw a set of keys at me to see if I'd catch him. And I thank God I did. And then I told him why I was there and we sat down and it was the most entertaining probably meeting I've ever had in my motorsports career. You know, and Humpy goes off on this, you know, on this tangent about there's nothing like driving a stock car and it's not like driving anything else. And that I needed to go into the sonic sound room and forget everything I know and start all over again. And then he told me about, he'd written this book called the Mechalite, which is about, you know, how, how race car drivers are athletes because it's the mechanics and the athlete combined. And Mechley. I mean, I was like, Oh no, he did. He wrote this book or book brochure called the Mechalite. I mean, this is back in <laughs> nine, probably 1988, I think, 1987 or 88. And I mean, my eyes were like, as big as saucers. And I remember walking out of there going, I'm not even sure that I am a race car driver. I mean, it was just so mind boggling, you know? And so that was one of my discovery, you know, meetings and just trying to figure out what I was going to do. I talked to Bill uh, a number because Bill, we, we ran together at Daytona. We ran together at Watkins Glen. And I, and I said, Bill, I said, would you consider building a car to go to Talladega, a Ford Thunderbird? Because that's the, the car they were running, obviously, in NASCAR. And I said, would you consider building a car to take it to Talladega that's really set up for Talladega? Like, because you know that track and you know how to do that. And it would be purpose built. And he goes, well, yeah, you know, if, if, we, if somebody will pay for it. And so then I went to Ford and then I went to Goodyear. And long story short, it happened to be timed right because they were coming out with a new body style with the Super Coupe. And so they had a motivation to play around with learning more about the aero package of the Super Coupe. So when, when everybody has something to win, you know, to gain, then things sometimes can happen. And so that's how the whole deal came together. And they built a purpose-built car. The Elliott's built it and Ernie built the motor. And, and um, you know, it was basically achieved 
see your car, but they got to go, didn't have to comply with NASCAR's specific rules. They got to go to the wind tunnel and learn a lot about that car without breaking the NASCAR rules. Because my understanding was if you were a factory supported team like Ford, then you could, no one team could get something that the other teams couldn't get. But because this wasn't for their NASCAR program, they were able to get some wind tunnel time and learn a little bit about that car and the aero package before they made all the modifications to set it up for Talladega. Again, Ford hired a film crew and there was a, you know, kind of film around it and a lot of pressure. And and there's, I'll tell you, there's nothing weirder than being at a racetrack with only, you're the only race car there, particularly at a place like Talladega that's just huge. And you have like 30 or 40 meaty people and the race team and the factory represented i mean there's everybody's there and there's only one car to watch it's like watching grass grow it was a lot of pressure and and it took me a while to get up to speed in the car it was not as easy as i thought it was probably more what humpy like what humpy wheeler told me than i realized but i finally got comfortable i mean i remember bill sticking his head in at one point and saying so how's it going and i'm like well, I don't know who's driving it because it's not me because it's doing its own thing and I have no idea what it's doing. <laughs> well, we did an average of 212.577. That was the average uh, top speed was 232. It wasn't a bucking Bronco. It was just, it was like a truck. I mean, it was this just huge body. I mean, I, I thought it would be more like a GTO car, but it really wasn't. It just felt humongous and it was heavy. It was, it was like a sled. I would watch the RPMs and it would just, I would get so mad because I would just, if I didn't turn it exactly at the right time, which is a barely a turn, you know, going into the corner, I'd watch my RPM drop like 50 or 100 RPM. But I would expect when I opened it up, as I opened the wheel up and went down the back straightaway, I expected the R's to pick up again, you know, to, to and they would just lay flat. It would take me two laps to get back if I squeezed, if I didn't do everything exactly right. And I mean, I remember when Bill took me around in, in the streetcar prior to me going out and he and I'm like, so now where's the ideal place to be here? And he goes, no, 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 it's not where to be. It's where not to be. He's, you know, so he would tell me the places not to go. The rest of it is still that left a lot of room for options. So it took me a while to try to, you know, because that's all feel. You have to feel the car when the car is in the sweet spot. And I I could have, I never felt a sweet spot in that thing. I mean, it was like driving a sledge. I mean, it was just kept going around and around and around and around. And, and we eventually got it figured out. And then Bill's record there was 212 point. Let's see, I went 577. I think his was 212.688 or something. I mean, it was literally no more than a one or two tenths of a mile an hour slower. But of course, his is a, was a legal, you know, NASCAR legal car. Well, basically legal anyway. And of course, there was the joke in, within the garage was that Ernie didn't want me to, Ernie Elliott didn't want me to go faster than Bill's record because interestingly enough, when I reached that particularly good speed um, on the back straightaway, the engine just went flat. It just, we dropped a valve or something. And they said, Ernie probably hit a little button. <laughs> nope, it's over. <laughs> So uh, I learned there that I don't want to drive a stock car. Three weeks later, I got to drive an Indy car for the first time. Dick Simon called me after the end of the season, and I got to drive an Indy car, and that totally was the decision of where I wanted to take my career. I just love driving that Indy car. So I got to go around Talladega two different occasions, and um, sets, we set 21 national and international speed records at Talladega with the Thunderbird besides the, the close course record, uh, one lap record for a woman, which was 212.577. Sometimes a scrap between drivers can come to involve team owners, much larger team owners, as Alan McNish can attest. And sometimes the outcomes of those scraps 
definitely not what you might anticipate. The main ones obviously start off with a bit of a an incident, and uh, obviously people think straight away of uh, Petit Le Mans. Uh, from my point of view, going out the pits, wanging the wall, and uh, then coming back through. But if I go back to the first Petit Le Mans, then uh, there was a situation that we were in with the R8s, and the R8 was a fantastic beast, beautiful, beautiful uh, car. However, at that time especially, it was super sensitive and cold tyres because the throttle application was an on-off switch. It was a bit of a barky engine as well. And uh, it was really tricky on outlaps, super tricky. And especially at 8 o'clock in the morning, which was when we had the warm-up uh, for the PLM on the Saturday morning. And I came out the pits, and before I got even to the top of the hill, I'd done a 360 alongside Boris Said. And Boris was uh, with uh, Milner. And... Uh, old Tom was a bit frustrated and annoyed about this and came up and started pointing his finger at me and shouting. I mean, you know, Tom's a big guy and I'm a little guy, but I'm, I'm, I was quite a little feisty guy at the time. And I started pointing my finger back at Tom. And uh, it got a bit heated, to be honest with you, because I think he'd had it, Boris had had an incident with an Audi at some point through and he felt this was us out of control. When we were out of control, but we were out of control because we couldn't ever control the thing at that point. But uh, after... This sort of, it was quite funny because I didn't actually know who Tom was very well, but I did know that he was much bigger than me. And if he did start to sort of lean on me, then I was definitely going to come off worse on this. But uh, as it stood, we had this point in match and it was uh, all a bit sort of a bit of a fuss about nothing in the end. Uh, and then we met each other at the, at the bar at the airport and sat down and talked about it. And from that moment on, I have to say he's been an absolute, stunning friend all the way through real respect for what he did as a team boss and how he ran bmws and brought them into the programs in north america and drivers and things coming through it but uh, i suppose it's one of those ones that you know the first moment of competition is always about that sort of intensity where you're face to face or nose to nose or in this case nose to kneecap uh, with someone and uh, then afterwards, you know, so you sort of realize that you're both fighting for the same thing at the end and build a friendship. Continuing the theme of scraps, we've seen plenty of instances where race cars have been used as a weapon in the midst of a heated track battle. But is it possible to inflict damage with a car? It's already parked on pit lane. The Primus Racing Porsche 962 run by Kevin Jeanette, Gunner's father, a young Doug Feehan involved on the sponsor side a legendary brian redmond as chris Nifel's teammate we'll go ahead and let knife answer this question in the affirmative okay this would have been uh, 1987 laguna seca back when it was the real laguna seca there wasn't any silly infield turns it was the real turn two a real turn three and a real turn four my goodness, that was something in a, both the IndyCar and, in this case, the 962 Porsche prototype. Uh, it absolutely was one of the thrill job attention getters in certainly in North American racing and probably anywhere in the world. It was in, in a car with, with horsepower and downforce. It was serious. And when it was right, it was fun. So we were doing really well, and this would have been qualifying. I don't remember. I think we qualified fifth or sixth, something like that, which was good. Uh, not great, but uh, it was it was good. I mean, we out qualified a lot of 
the heavy hitters. You know, keep in mind, you know, there were a lot of other very, very stout 962 runners. Plus, you had your, you know, the NPTI Nissans and the whole, you know, Roush was running cars. It was it was quite a quite a field of prototypes in those days. And uh, I goofed up on on my qualifying lap. I I nailed turn two. I nailed three, I nailed four, I nailed five up underneath the bridge. Now it was just a matter of go up the hill and, you know, don't screw up at the corkscrew. And sure enough, I, I, I just broke a tick too late for the, uh, for the corkscrew. It wasn't a big deal, but if you break a little bit too late for the corkscrew, what happens is you, you miss your first apex, which would be your left hander at the top of the hill. And you, once you miss that apex, your line to go left, right gets tight in the middle and you have to, it's time off throttle at that point. You know, you're having to wait until the car can get the nose pointed and then you can go to the throttle and, and down. And, and this is all, you know, I'm splitting hairs, but we're talking a couple tenths of a second is what the, what the loss was. And that would have been the difference probably between P5 and front row. And that's what I was shooting for. I really wanted to be on the front row. And I thought that's where we belonged. And uh, so I, I made the mistake, but it was still, it was still a good run. So finish the lap. And now I'm, you know, okay. The, the team's on the radio. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good lap. And Kevin's happy. I can hear it in his voice. And it was, it was good, but I knew, I knew that I goofed. Right. So I'm pissed. So I, you know, come into the pit lane, park the car. I don't see Brian. Brian comes around. Of course he's in the nine, six twos, the door, the door opens going style. But it's also you enter the car, enter and exit off the right hand side of the car. So Brian's coming from the back of the car and I don't see him. So I pull like the 962s have like just like a wire that you pull that un- unlatches the door. So I yank the door thing and I fling the door. I literally throw the door up in the air right as Brian is leaning down towards the cockpit to congratulate me. <laughs> It flushes him on the chin, and boo! There goes Brian Redmond backwards on his butt, laying on his back in the middle of pit lane. And you know, I when I realized that I hit somebody, I didn't know it was him. Was I could feel the resistance on the door as I'm throwing it up into the air. You're big and ass I, flipping that door with and, your wing. And and I'm like going, I I like look, and there's Redmond laying on the on the freaking tarmac in the middle of pit lane. And I'm like going, I'm just such an asshole. <laughs> I was, I mean, I, look, I, I felt so small and like such an absolute chump. You you clocked and damn near knocked I, out Brian Redmond. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I dropped him and I was like, no one could, no one, everyone was happy except me. Right. <laughs> it was one of my probably most embarrassing I, mean, I wouldn't even say embarrassing. It was it was a small it was a small moment for me. It, it uh, I had I just it, everything went wrong, and of course for me to to knock down Brian like that was just not cool. <laughs> but it was a good story though. I got a good story out of the deal. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was pretty funny actually. Thankfully his teeth didn't get knocked out or anything like that. And for all of the the things that I did learn from being on the same team as Brian Redman. Uh, apparently decorum was something that we missed. You'd have thought, you'd have thought that some of that, you know, gentlemanly English 
nature would have you know rubbed off on me somehow but i guess i guess i i just didn't i didn't pass that test yeah good times right well the best laid plans right the goal was to distill more than 10 hours of interviews down to a single special episode episode number 1000 and well that didn't quite happen more than four hours of interviews cut down for your amusement and i believe there's another hour set to come in so what are we doing well this is becoming a two-parter it might be a three-parter there's too much goodness to put in a single episode so we won't we're going to save part one here this is our christmas week special it's 1000 next week as we head into the new year can't tell you exactly what the number will be that'll be a part two and if it deserves it if there's a need we'll go to a part three might spin out one or two of the longer ones we've yet to get done into episodes of their own but wanted to thank you i hope you had fun hope you had some laughs hope you learned a little something maybe the feels came in just a tiny bit whatever it might be Oh, there's a lot more coming in part two. I'll tell you, coming up with a strategy on how to share this, what to put in what order. Do you front load it with all the best stories? Well, then you find out, no, these are the best stories. So there's just as much quality stuff coming in part two. Thank you, Cooper Tires. Thank you, Justice Brothers. TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Most of all, as I say every week, I'm a week in IndyCar we can sports car shows all the listener driven content thank you for making this what it is i love doing these shows special regular in-car audio ambient audio my racing life and career catching up with whatever else these i do for myself i do them for you really really appreciative of the community that we have put together that's gotten us here to 1000 i am marshall pruitt this is my dumb little podcast thank you for listening <laughs>